Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. It talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast, now a part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Justin Smith. He's the author of what the book called The Sting of the Wild, and it's on Amazon and wherever books are sold. Uh, he's an entomologist, and he has a mission. Uh, some say it's brave, or others you know, think it's crazy, but uh, he's been comparing the impacts of stinging insects on humans, using himself as a test case. So he's been stung by God knows how many creatures and reports on how painful it is and other things, and we're going to get into a story. So, Justin, thanks for coming. You're welcome. It's been my pleasure to be with you. Yeah, so tell me about your background. How did you go from being a normal entomologist to like a, you know, a crash test dummy for stingers? Well, I think I still am a normal entomologist. Maybe that says something about entomologists, but no, not really. I'm, I'm more or less on a quest for science, a mission for science rather than, you know, anything exceptional. I was just a, uh, young kid like you know most kids and I was growing up in a rural area there wasn't much to do and so we had a dusty ball field and, and that was about it a lot of trees to climb and so being little I was always kind of a little kid so I would look around at things that are close to me and little like me and that would be things in the grass and in the fields and so I just always had this this interest in insects I of course had never heard of the word entomology I have no idea what that was I just knew the creepy crawly things were kind of cool. So that's how I got started. Okay. And then how did you transition into working with stinging insects, venomous insects? Yeah. What happened is uh, as I got older, I got into uh, high school and started taking science courses, first biology. And I decided, hey, biology is really cool. We got to go and stomp through swamps and try to catch dragonflies and things of that sort, which was always fun. And of course, you'd always fall in and end up with a muddy mess but that was always just good just good clean fun part of the part of the uh, operation then i progressed to physics which was absolutely fascinating i loved physics it just explained so much so i decided well i guess i'm going to become a physicist so then the next year i took chemistry and i said hey chemistry is the coolest subject around i guess i'm going to become a chemist so you can see i i really hadn't made up my mind at that point i just was intrigued with anything out there that was kind of interesting. So when I went to college, a couple of good friends of mine had said, well, you can't study bugs. Nobody makes a living doing that. So you got to get a real job so you can support yourself, make a living. And so I thought, well, I like chemistry. 
chemistry is fun and it's good job to get paid and lots of demand for chemists. It's a tough field. So I enrolled in chemistry and I loved chemistry and I went through that, got a bachelor's and a master's and I was working on my PhD and I decided, gee, all my friends are out there in nature. They're doing cool things, marine biology or geology up in the Arctic or, you know, just outdoor things that were kind of scientifically interesting and fun. What was I doing? I was sitting in a lab with a white lab coat smelling benzene and carbon tetrachloride and really noxious sort of things, doing repetitive experiments. I thought, gee, there's got to be more to life than this. So at that point, I decided to change gears and go back into entomology, back to bugs, that is. And I found a professor in Georgia who was like me. He had got a master's in chemistry and then decided that he really wanted to do biology. So he was kind of a kindred spirit and understood where I was coming from. So I set up and worked with him. So the first thing I arrived, I thought, well, what do I do? You know, here I am. I'm, I'm sort of a chemist. I, I had biology in, in high school. I didn't have any in uh, college except for genetics and ecology. I did have those two courses, but that was it. So what am I going to do as now a full-time biologist, entomologist-type biologist? I said, well, put my chemistry to work. I'll study the uh, chemistry of stinging insect venoms. And so that's how I got started in that realm. Okay, so you got into stinging insects. Are venomous insects different from stinging insects? Is that an important distinction or are they the same? They're pretty much as stinging insect versus venomous insect are pretty much interchangeable terms that you can talk about toxic insects. Those are things that you have to eat. For example, blister beetles. You don't want to eat one of those because they were the famous Spanish fly and it does a lot of really bad things like irritate and destroy your stomach lining. And of course, in the process of irritating your kidneys and genital region, that was where the name of Spanish fly came from. If you tailor just the right amount, supposedly, according to the rumor, which I have not pursued and I'm not going to, could guarantee you that, that it was supposed to, if you got just the right dose, enhance the romantic life. And I thought, well, no, I don't think we want to go there. But that would be a toxic thing because they they have no stinger. A venomous insect or a uh, venom in general is something that's injected into you. So that that's the main difference. It's you know kind of a nuanced thing, but it's, it is important. Yeah, because I just wondered if, so you focus only on insects that just sting? Or, I mean, you know, I guess some of them, can spray venom, you know, I guess, no, it's not venom, but skunk spray. I don't know if there's any other insects that, I guess, vinegaroons spray you with vinegar. And so is it just the sting or do you deal with insects that spray or they're, you know, ones that inject through fangs? I mean, snakes, do you let them bite you? Like, what, where do you draw the line here? No, I, I step back to a broader scale than that. I look at, I'm basically interested in the evolution of predator prey systems and how animals prevent getting eaten and yet eat themselves. You know, you figure the two two challenges of life, two of the most important ones are getting something to eat to continue going on and not being in somebody else's tummy. So I study a lot of those dynamics. And one of those I worked on were vinegaroons, which, as you mentioned, spray concentrated acetic acid, something like 13 times more concentrated than vinegar or about 65% acetic acid, which is a whoppingly huge concentration. And so I studied them as far as the defense. What do they eat? And they eat virtually everything. What eats them? Virtually nothing. So they, they've got a pretty good game going for that species. And I studied giant velvet mites, which are toxic and taste really, really bad. So that's their defensive system. Wait, what so kind of, to, did you say velvet mice? Yeah, they're giant velvet mites. They're about Oh, a quarter of an inch long, and they're bright red, and they're spotted. They're actually quite cute. Chinese stuffed animal makers should should make these and put them on the market. I'm sure they get snapped up like hotcakes. So, what's your goal in studying these creatures? I mean, you're so you're letting the, some of them, I guess, sting you and bite you to see how it feels, which is kind of crazy. I guess you're uh, you're a masochist in a way. But um, like, what's what's your goal in studying them? Just to study them and learn as much as you can. Basically, I don't really let insects sting me in general. What happens is I'm, like I said, on a quest of science to try to understand how social evolution 
arose in the insects. You know, like we're a social species that, as you can see in the news right now, people are getting crazy because they're getting cloistered up all alone and they're missing social contact. Well, social insects are the same thing. They live with a, a mother in most cases, a queen, and they have lots of young and they live in a colony and this sort of thing. And my question was, how do you get there? You know, how do you go from a single mom, which raises all her babies alone to a, a huge colony of sometimes thousands of different individuals, all in like, one like insect city, so to speak? How do you get from A to B? And the, the problem is you say, well, why should that be a problem? The problem is, it's as my analogy goes, if you're in a cocktail party and you're a little bit hungry and you see across the way a bowl with a peanut in it, are you going to go and bother to cross the room to get it? Well, I wouldn't. Most people wouldn't. It's not worth the effort to do that. But if there's a whole huge brimful bowl of peanuts, then yes, it's worthwhile. So that analogy relates to stinging insects. The, the single mom who has a stinger, she stings caterpillars or cicadas or you know whatever the prey is that that particular species uses and feeds that to her young. But she's like the single peanut, you know, one scrawny little insect. It's really not worth the effort trying to catch her. She's probably fast and can run away and fly away or something of that sort. And so as they go into get a colony, all of a sudden now you've got a situation where it's like being a mom with a whole bunch of helpers and thousands and thousands of babies. Problem. We can't run away now. You know, we have this city. And so we have to stand and fight. And how are we going to fight against something that's a million times bigger than us, like a skunk or possum or any number of you know, large predators, bears, you know, raccoons, you name it, just about everything likes eating insects. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now, back to the show. And so my hypothesis was that the only way you could survive and evolve to that very useful city-type colony environment is to be able to defend against things many, many times bigger than you. And about the best way to do that is by stinging them and causing extreme pain and or toxicity. Usually the two go together. Mm -hmm. The pain gets your attention. And toxicity does damage, makes you swell up or, you know, whatnot. In extreme, it can actually kill you. So I was working on that, and that's pretty much where it all started. I had nothing in mind about a sting pain scale. That was the last thing from my mind. I was interested in the chemistry at that point. Do you know of anyone that's looked at the microbiome of venomous creatures to see if there's certain bacteria that tend to hang out, you know, in the gland? let's say, that produces the venom or, you know, in the body of the creature? There's, there's actually quite a whole field working on the microbiome of, of venomous. These are all parasitic wasps, and they're not the stinging ones. They do have a stinger. It's actually called an ovipositor. But what they do is, in many cases, they will sting a caterpillar, say, lay a bunch of eggs in them, and then the the female parasitic wasp leaves and what happens is she injects a bunch of viruses in there and the viruses kind of take over the physiology and hormonal system of the host so it keeps on eating and growing so there's lots of nutritional food available for the young and so there's a lot of work going on in this area it's it's probably many more species than what I've worked on uh, that are in this category but as far as the stinging insects that I work on I don't know of any studies of a symbiosis or a microfauna that has anything to do with the venom gland or the venom itself. It's all pretty much synthesized de novo, that is, by the insect itself. Okay. So how did the, uh, the stinging pain scale come about? How did you get that idea? 
Yeah, this was what I call serendipity that I was originally, I was working on something called the uh, Florida Harvester Ant. And the reason we picked that was there was literature reports that this thing really hurt. It hurt a whole lot. And that was that was interesting in itself. But more interesting was it had very unusual reactions that it produced in the person who was stung. You would end up with the hairs on the, on your arm or your part of your body that had been stung all of a sudden standing up like the hairs on a frightened dog's back. This hadn't been normally seen. It's stung by a honeybee. That doesn't happen. Or a wasp. No, it doesn't happen. Or ants or anything else. But this particular group of harvester ants did that. And they also caused a localized sweating around the area. And the third thing that they did was they caused a kind of a dull, really unesthetic pain in the nearest lymph nodes. All those things were unique and were not reported for any other insects. Plus the fact that they hurt for like four hours after you got stung. Whereas a honeybee, you know, you can nurture along the pain for uh, a little bit, maybe after 10 minutes, but you're really pretty much just pulling out of thin air at that point, you know, usually it doesn't hurt that much. And so you're, you're just kind of imagining things, but with the harvester, it really did hurt. So I said, aha, what's the chemistry of this? What's, what's going on here? Why is this so different from a honeybee? And so I did the chemistry and found out it has a lot of enzymes, which are totally unknown to insect venoms. And so I said, then at that point, hmm, okay. uh, You know, I'm just a, experienced person from more northerly climates. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. We have honeybees and we have bumblebees and we have yellow jackets and we have paper wasps and, you know, things of this sort. We all get stung by those as kids. You know, we always are doing something rascally and ending up stirring up a, a colony and getting stung by these things. We know what they feel like. They're kind of burning like a match head that breaks off a, a struck match and lands on your skin or something. It kind of burn and they hurt. But, you know, that, that's about it. And this harvesting was so different. So then the question was, well, is it Southern hospitality? Because I was in Georgia, whereas all my other experiences have been up in Pennsylvania or the Northwest. And so I said, well, there's only one way to answer this question. That is to examine a whole lot of other venom. Time I was doing this, the venoms are only one or two hornet species and one or two yellow jacket species and honeybees. Those are the only three groups that had been studied at all. There's 20,000 bees, different species of bees, and there's probably 60,000 total species of stinging insects. So we knew about, well, now with my work, four of them. So I said, is my oddball fourth, is is that... um, oddball like I thought or is that more typical and just the three that have been studied were the were strange ones so that set me on my quest so you said there's 60,000 different stinging insects exactly yeah there's a lot of them a lot of there's about 15,000 ants 20,000 bees and there's a a lot of wasps social wasps alone are almost a thousand then there's a lot of solitary ones the ones that the mud daubers and the cicada killers and you know, various cricket catchers and a lot of things. There's many, many of those as well, things to possibly do. But also I can pretty much predict what most of them would feel like now that I've, you know, done this for many years. I'm to the point where I I know enough about the behavior and the taxonomy and the lifestyle that I can pretty much predict and and the taxonomic relationships with these things, you know, how much they're going to hurt. But so are, there, are there any that um, are so bad that they would be dangerous for you to be stung by that they would kill you? Well, the most dangerous one of all, of course, is the honeybee. People think, oh, just sweet little honeybees on the flower out in my flower box or in the backyard. The problem with honeybees is you can get twenty to 50,000 of them in a colony. And if you go and mess with them, especially what we call Africanized bees in, in the New World where we are in the U.S., and that sort of area, Latin America, and in Africa, they have the, the true African bees, and they're all about the same. You get those stirred up, and you can get a thousand or more stings, and you start getting that many stings. It's, my analogy is that a honeybee sting is like one five hundredth of a rattlesnake bite on wings. Mm. So you can imagine if you get 500 stings, it's like getting bitten by a nice, juicy uh, eastern diamondback rattlesnake or something of that sort. 
And so if you get a thousand or fifteen hundred, that's like three bites of a rattlesnake. Mm, yeah, wow. this, this is getting pretty serious. So you know, the famous uh bee expert in Cornell University back several decades ago, when asked what's the most dangerous stinging insect in the world, he said, without a doubt, it's the giant horn giant honeybees of Asia, Apis dorsata and Apis laboriosa. And they're so dangerous because they have twenty thousand individuals that they're bigger than you know our honeybees we're familiar with. So that means they have more venom. And the scarier thing is they have an open comb. So they're not in a in a hive or not in a hollow tree with a restricted entrance. And you go and irritate them and what happens is a whole wave of about ten thousand bees just falls off this huge comb that's hanging on a tree branch. And they just instantly swarm and attack you. And they, I think, been recorded to actually kill things as big as elephants once in a while. Although I'm not sure whether that's actually documented or just, you know, sometimes yeah, you get yeah. urban legends that, that are, you know, hard to actually document. But Have you, you uh, don't want to mess with those things. Yeah. I've seen like, uh, you know, of interest to me, like scorpions. Now, I know that some of the ones that look the worst, like the emperor scorpion, are probably no big deal to be stung by. But. Have you ever been stung by a scorpion? Have you tried that? No, like I, I've been fortunate that scorpions aren't stinging insects. They're, they're arachnids more related to, to spiders and vinegaroons. And really all my work has been trying to understand the evolution of stinging insects, hymenopsis, ants, wasps, and bees. And since they aren't one, there'd be no use to me. And I don't try to get stung. I just work on these insects. And in the process of working on them, you usually get stung. For example, one time I was walking up a stream in Costa Rica, just a leisurely Sunday, took half a day off work and decided I'm going to enjoy nature. So I'm walking up with a backpack and I run into this colony of, of wasps. I, I knew what they were. I'd never seen one before. They're called Polybia rejecta. And the name rejecta kind of gives you a hint as to something about their personality. And so I thought, well, here it is. I'm just down here for another week. I've been here three weeks. I may never see this thing again. I'm two hours up this stream and I don't want to go back down, get all my equipment and come back up. It'll be dark and I'll get lost and probably fall in the, in the river and drowned or something. So I'm going to deal with it right now. So all I had was I had two insect nets. So one of them went over my head is kind of like a, a supposed bee veil type substitute which it wasn't very good at but i thought it was better than nothing and the other one i thought i would bag the wasp colony with so i'd come up to it and give it a big snap and it'd fall into the net and then i could tie the net off and voila i would have my my creatures that was nice neat and tidy right well turned out the nest was a little stouter than i thought it was it didn't come off very easily but the wasps sure did they were quite mobile and I got I don't know dozen or maybe slightly fewer stings of that but I nevertheless got enough of the nest that I got what I wanted and you say well you know that's a painful way to get a data point which is true but it was a data point it's something I may have never seen again and since it's, it's rare when you get a chance to get one more species to add to the list to get you need about 60 or 70 to get enough to actually do the statistics that were required for my study. So when you're getting along 40 or 50, you've gotten almost there, but the ones available that are left are getting kind of scarce. So if you see one, you got you to gotta get it. Just do what you have to do. And so that's how virtually all of my painful stings occurred, that they're all, one of the correlations between pain and, and stinging insects is those that really hurt tend to be not so reticent to sting. They'll come right after you. Whereas those that don't tend to hurt are usually quite shy and it's really hard to get them to sting you. And they, they usually don't at all. And so that's how I got most of my, my stings was being out in the biological battlefield, so to speak. Another example, I was up a tree and tried to get one. And unfortunately, I didn't realize that they could fly through my bee veil, which I did have on that time. They were small enough. So the next thing you know, you're getting stung. And well, I got them, but I, I also got a another sting number for the pain scale. So it all kind of works out in the end. And it's just, you know, occupational hazard, I guess you'd say. 
why uh, so are you letting these things sting you or they're just happening because you work with them so often and you know what what have you noticed like are people now saying hey can i would you mind letting this thing sting you so we can <laughs> we can see how it feels like are people trying to get you to be stung more than you were or like what's the whole what's the whole yeah. reason that you made this index yeah it's, it's a ladder usually it's happened that i just get stung in the process of working on it i almost never intentionally sting myself People, oh, there's the urban legend, which is going to persist forever as long as we have language and people that I sting myself intentionally. And there's really no point in trying to fight that because urban legends can't be debunked. But yes, I have stung myself a couple of times intentionally. And those are all the result of, I'd give talks and people would come up with their favorite insect and they'd say, well, what about those scary mud daubers, those dirt daubers, those things that make a cloud of dirt on the wall of your your shed or in the back porch or something like that. They're really scary. You know, these things, they got to hurt. And they asked me, have I ever been stung by one? I said, no. And they said, and they say, well, what would it hurt like? And I said, well, it'd be pretty minor. They say, why is that? And I say, well, the reason is they're solitary. It's just the, the single mom again. And she's catching a few spiders, sticking them in the dirt nest laying an egg and raising her young. And the problem for a predator is, although she's over an inch long and very scary looking, she's an awfully skinny snack. It's like eating a leaf. You know, you don't get much nutrition out of one small porcel. And you say, well, you could eat her nest. Well, if you want 80% mud and 20% squash spiders, I guess you could do that. But most predators don't want to do that. So she'd have no real reason to defend if something comes nearby like a bird or something, she just flies away and escapes. And generally that does the trick because nobody wants to mess with their nest. So I said, therefore, she'd have no real reason to have a painful venom. And so it should be very minor. And People would say, yeah, right, Schmidt, you're just a coward. And I said, well, no, I have no reason to do that. And I said, oh, the other thing is it's very hard to get them to sting. I've never known of anybody who's been stung by one. People that work on them and spend a whole life learning behavior of solitary wasps like these. And most of the time, they never get stung. And other people will catch the insect, reach into the net, and grab it by fingers. And they don't report getting stung. So I had these kind of, I'd give these meetings to public and scientific meetings. And they always ask the same question about one or two of their favorite, quote, scariest of insects. And so I finally decided after the they were like pit bulls as audience. They always wanted to know about the same things. And so I said, well, okay, I guess I'm going to have to bite the bullet, get myself stung by this so I can fend off these questions that I'm getting all the time. So I went out to a uh, eastern Arizona, southeastern Arizona, dry area that had a stock tank, which is basically the water for free-ranging cattle in, in the area. And they're pumped by a, a windmill that pumps water out of the ground and puts it into a, a kind of a, a cavern or a container, a trough, so to speak, where the cattle can get their drink. Well, a lot of these things are kind of failing, and so they overflow on a windy day, and there's, well, water in the ground. What's water and ground equal? Hmm, any young kid knows that. Water plus ground makes mud. Since there's mud dauber, they need mud to make their nests. They can't make it out of dust because they need water to make it into mud. So the idea is there were a lot of them around there collecting this mud. So I grabbed three of the females and you can tell the difference. Males don't do any work. They're kind of, well, I'm not going to go there, but anyway, they're sort of lazy and they can't well, sting. They so they, yeah. So they have no reason to be there. And so I grabbed three of the females. The first two are duds. I couldn't even get them to sting me. I would kind of hold them and push the tip of their abdomen where the stinger comes out into the softest part of my inner arm, trying to get them to sting. And the first two were abysmal failures. Third one, they finally got to sting me a couple of times. And the reaction was, as I predicted, kind of underwhelming because they, they normally don't get attacked by anything. And so they therefore don't need to sting in defense. They use their sting for paralyzing spiders. That's, you know, what they're, main job in life is catching spiders and putting them in mud nests. So I had to do this with uh, cicada killers and mud daubers and there might have been one or two others. Some of the uh, solitary wasps that look like 
paper wasps, which incidentally do hurt a lot. You know, the paper wasps above your your eaves or something that you see in, in the summer, and they have anywhere from a dozen to 50 or so wasps. When they sting you, they really hurt. So they evolved from solitary ancestors that would catch caterpillars. And these ancestors were, again, single moms. So my prediction was, which is actually a fascinating question, is did single moms not hurt much but when they became social and queens? Did all of a sudden their colonies start really hurting? So I thought, this is a good thing to test. And again, there's it's almost impossible to get stung by one of these solitary, often called potter wasps, that are the ancestral type relatives of the paper wasps. And so I've been stung by probably four or five different species. Pretty much all of these had to be intentional. And they were all basically a one, so that's pretty much trivial. It's, you know, like I say, nothing to write home to mom about. What was the worst? I think you said a bullet ant or what, what was the Yeah, that, those are ants. And so there are some of these paper wasps that are just mentioning that go up to a three. And so it turns out the solitary ones are mostly a one. The paper wasps, are some of the smaller ones, go up to a two, which is basically the same as a honeybee. You know, it's smart. It gets your attention. You, know, you don't want to be stung by a two. A one, you know, eh, well, it's kind of anticlimactic to say the least. The three, you really don't want to go there. And some of these big paper wasps will go up to a three. There are no uh, paper wasps. Well, there, there's one relative of the paper wasp. It's the tropical warrior wasp, which will actually get up to a four. And the bullet ant. Well, what is what does the bullet ant feel like? What's what's the worst thing you've had? Is it a bullet ant? What did you have um, any medicine standing by to help you in case the pain was too bad? No, the bullet ants are actually kind of a fascinating creature. They're by far the most painful stinging of any of the any of the ants, bees, or wasps. And they're uh, strictly in the New World tropics from maybe uh, Honduras down to southern Brazil. They're kind of a secondary growth or rainforest adapted species. And it's a really interesting ant because they're the second largest ants in the world. So they're big whoppers. They're almost an inch long about four-fifths of an inch, and they have huge colonies. So they combine a couple of things, big individuals and a lot of them. So there's lots of mm, yum, yum, you know, dinner if I can stand the spice. But they're a little bit too spicy for virtually anything, including people. But people have used them. There's been a quite a number of expeditions of the last 15, 20 years going to Amazon where there are some of the local tribesmen that have initiation ceremony, kind of puberty rites, so to speak, where they have the the young, wishful warrior or hunter has to endure the pain of getting stung by bullet ants. The the logic of why they do this is that if you're going to be a, a hunter and get married and take care of a wife and kids, you have to be tough enough to go out into the forest, mm. get scratched up, get bitten, and get you know stung by everything on earth in the process of trying to catch a monkey or something for, for dinner for tonight. And they don't want wimpy, you know, people that are incapable of doing that because then all of a sudden they'll have a bunch of orphans or starving kids that aren't being taken care of properly. So they want to make sure you have the, the metal to do that. So they go through these initiation rites. And as far as I know, there's never been anybody that's died of those. And they get several dozen stings, they usually put their hands in a, a mitten, which has been woven with the business end of the bullet ant sticking inward. And the scary part, that is the head and mandible snapping away on the outside. But don't don't let that scare you. It's the inside. It's the business part. So they have to put their hands in these things, get dozens of stings. And in the process, they, they aren't allowed to whimper. You know, they can they can writhe maybe, but no noise. And then usually they have a dance ceremony where you're dancing with these these mittens on, which I think is a good idea. It helps distract you from this unbelievable pain. You know, I've been stung only by one ant at a time, and and that's you know much less than getting how, how bad twenty or thirty. It like? What does it feel like? Well, they call them bullet ant, which is a direct translation from the Spanish of bala, which is what they call. Them. It's kind of like I've never been hit by a bullet, but I suppose people who have equate the two that, you know, well, 
this is like getting hit by a bullet, instantaneous, immense, excruciating, debilitating pain that just absolutely knocks you, knocks you, you know, back. And so that's pretty much what I experienced the couple of times that I've been stung. And of course, never intentionally, but you don't have to worry. They'll get you. They're a really interesting ant because they nest in the ground. And if you go and mess with them, they come boiling out. And not only they, you know, you think a big black clumsy ant, wrong, wrong, wrong. They're very agile. They're big, but they're agile and they're sticky and they can climb up. I was using long uh, forceps, kind of like overgrown tweezers that are about a foot long and they're nicely chromed. And so they, they're quite slippery and most things can't climb up them. That might be one of the reasons they have chrome on them. I don't know, but it didn't work for the bullet ants. And so all of a sudden, you're jumping around with this horde of ants coming out after you and you're trying to catch them and put them in a, in a jar to uh, study their venom chemistry. And not only are they coming after you, you're trying to dodge the ones that are charging around trying to find you, but they're coming up your forceps because you can't grab them by hand. You'll get stung instantly. Okay. For example, one time I was working on them, one fell out of the canopy. They crawl up lianas, which are kind of like a vine-like plant. It fell out, bounced off my cheek, and hit the ground. It didn't actually have a stick to me. And it stung me in the process. It was a pretty minor sting. Fortunately, it was very superficial because it didn't have time to get much in me. But that indicates, you know, how quick they are and how fast and how sharp their stinger is. And so they climbed up the forceps, and that's how I got stung. And after the first time, I kind of got a little bit more cautious and learned how to not quite rile up so many, you know, rile up one or two at a time, be patient, wait for them to come down the tree trunk and catch them one at a time. And that way you don't alert this whole army to come after you. Well, in general, what makes a sting painful? You know, what are the chemical components that contribute to pain? And do they do damage long-term or is it just short-term pain? Yeah, in the case of the bullet ant, it's something we call panerotoxin, which is a protein. It's a actually a small protein called a peptide. And it's absolutely unique. There's nothing else in the world similar to this thing. And it causes all the pain. And it seems to cause the toxicity as well. It it affects neuromuscular, nervous system uh, connections. And it's it's interesting in that the bullet ant is an odd species of ant. There's something like 17 subfamilies of ants. Subfamilies are like countries, you know, around the world. They're distinct populations which have many cities and many towns in them. Those would be the species. Well, the bullet ant is like a single continent that has one species in it. And it's been that way for about a 100 million years. So it's been off there, cast off on its own to evolve this amazing venom. And so there's nothing that's similar to it. And that's pretty much what causes both the pain. It's actually highly toxic as well. It's about twice as toxic per unit weight as a honeybee. So honeybees are, are pretty powerful. Actually, they're more toxic than most rattlesnakes. So you can see you get a big ant that's twice as toxic per amount of venom as a honeybee. If you get a couple of dozen stings, that would be enough that it definitely gets your attention, but it's not enough to actually kill you. I've calculated the number that kill a, a normal uh, adult human being would be about 245. So these puberty rights have maybe two or three dozen. So they're well below the dangerous level. Dangerous meaning ability to kill you. Now, if you interpret dangerous as painful and miserable, well, they clearly are. There's no doubt about that. Are there other creatures you know of that, uh, you know, on your scale, the stinging index, they'd be like a five or a six, or is that just death? Yeah, the four is the highest number. It's, It's very hard to get precision. It's kind of like this pain index that's using pain scale that's used in hospitals where they rate, you know, one to 10. And they're really not very usable because who can distinguish between a three and a four or a seven and an eight or something like that? Most people just pick a number and it's, it's very hard to, you know, get much more precise than what I've used, which is four. And the, and the reason that is you can get stung by something that's categorized as a one and then get stung by something which is two. And the question is, 
which one hurts more? And obviously a two, and you say, is there any doubt in your mind? No, not at all. Absolutely, the two is much more painful than the than the one. And the same with three, clearly more painful than the two. If it's mass or minus, you know, sort of about the same, well, then it'd be like a, a paper wasp, a small paper wasp, and a honeybee in a yellow jacket. They're all about the same in overall pain. You know, there might be a slight difference depending on how much venom they managed to inject into you and how sensitive an area of your body got stung. For example, your nose, your lips, or eyelid area are a lot more painful than, say, the back of your hand or the back of your calf. So there's a lot of subjective things that are going into this, but they're roughly the same. And so a four would be clearly substantially more than, than say, a three. And that's pretty much about as precise as you can get, which you know, like I say, getting more numbers is pretty artificial. I suppose if a, a snake all of a sudden got defined as a uh, as an ant or a stinging insect, which of course would have to be science fiction to get a, a flying snake that has a stinger out the tail end and lives in huge colonies. But if such a thing did exist, that would probably be a five. But otherwise, the four is the highest that goes for stinging insects. Well, do you talk to people that deal with scorpions or snakes or tarantulas or, well, not tarantulas, but, you know, various spiders? And do they have their own scales of pain or are you kind of the, the lone wolf in this? Well, I, I'm pretty much, there's one other one, uh, a star, Chris Starr has made a sting pain scale and ours are basically the same. We've known each other for years and we pretty much concur on, you know, the he's got some species that I don't and vice versa. But the the difference is our insects we work on are not medically dangerous. In other words, they're not going to kill you. They're not going to make a finger fall off or not going to rot out your flesh or something like that. You start talking about other things like snakes in particular, but also scorpions and some of the spiders. You know, those those things can be quite dangerous. And so people don't want to get bitten by black widow spiders or or Sydney funnel web spiders or some of Phanutria, which is, I guess, called a banana spider. Some of those things can actually, you know, kill people, which is, you know, no science is worth getting yourself killed. You know, scientists and people who study scorpions and spiders and snakes try very hard not to get bitten or stung by them. But that said, most of the scorpions, like all the ones in the U.S. are pretty benign except the one bark scorpion which is in arizona right, doing in mexico there's, yeah there's a lot more of them in mexico and there's some really dangerous ones down in south america you don't want to mess with those things and of course africa they have the death stalker which pretty much tells you no i don't want to mess with that and so there's a bunch of really dangerous scorpions so you wouldn't want to get stung by any of those most of the spiders you get bitten by are pretty much irrelevant very few of them hurt much and those i used to have uh, an emperor scorpion and they look scary but they don't and i've had i've been stung by it but it was probably like a one but i i used to tease people in my uh in my college and tell them i would you know tie them up and have the scorpion sting them in the testicles and they're like no yeah <laughs> it's, it's funny you know well the emperor scorpion is one of the ones that i call i call the Arnold schwarzenegger of scorpions it, it's big enough and strong enough that it doesn't need to be able to have a gun or a stinger yeah. effective because it can just smash you with one one blow of crushing and crunch. That's cockroach is ready for dinner now. Yeah. So yeah, you said I guess the uh, the insects that don't come in around pred- predators very often don't have very powerful or painful venom, but the ones I guess that are exposed constantly to predators. They've had to evolve to the point where they have to have very painful and, I guess, at least somewhat toxic venom to get the predators away. And they're also very aggressive about using it, I guess, because they're they're challenged so often. Yeah, that that's basically right. You, you go to the one exception that we might have is domestic honeybees and white boxes up in the northern areas of the U.S. You can go to them and you know work. Most beekeepers work them, and they have a veil just because they don't want to get stung in the face which swells up and it's kind of a darn nuisance you know not being able to see out of one eye for a day or two is not really pleasant but usually they uh, get very few stings that's because we've domesticated 
the honeybees to make them very docile, kind of like cows. You know, you won't, don't want to go in Africa and try last suing a Cape buffalo. You're going to do it once in a lifetime, and that's the end of you. And the analogy applies to honeybees, that the Africanized ones and the ones in Africa are like wild honeybees as opposed to our domesticated ones. And they get attacked by anything from bears and raccoons and possums and skunks in the New World to something called a honey badger or rotel, as they call it in South Africa, which is a, basically a tropical wolverine that loves honey. And it's, it's strong enough that it can actually tear apart many trees to get to the honey and it can, can withstand hundreds of stings. We don't know whether it hurts them or not. I presume it probably does. I would think so. But you know, how do you ask a honey badger whether it hurts? Get close enough to it and it'll tear you apart. But, you know, they, they're serious predators. And so the only way honeybees could survive all these predators was just behaviorally mounting thousands and thousands of defenders that come out, just sting and sting and sting. There have actually been cases of honey badgers that made bad judgment, if I may use that term, and gotten stung by too many that have actually been killed. So they're not totally immune to it. And so if you get a good enough defense, you can chase the honey badger off. And same thing with, you know, a bear. If you get enough things attacking the bear's eyes and mouth and tongue, the bear will sort of decide, well, I guess I'm not really that hungry today. I think I'll go find some acorns to chew on or something of that sort. Well, how, how specific are these um, these venoms, you know, from ants and wasps and, and bees? Are they specific to only a few species or they seem to affect everyone? They pretty much affect all vertebrates, that is mammals and birds. Usually birds and reptiles are more resistant than mammals. Birds, I'm not sure why. Maybe it's just because they basically are a warm-blooded reptile. The reptiles are a lot more resistant than us. They're affected by, you know, even even amphibians like toads, which are some of the most primitive of the vertebrate species that we have on land. And toads will get stung in the mouth, and they don't like it. You, know, you can see they obviously are gaping, and their eyes are popping in and out. But they're they're hardy enough that they can just keep eating them. Depends how hungry they are. So I we don't know how toxic it is to toads. I haven't ever heard of a toad dying of <laughs> being stung to death. It might take an awful lot. But as far as mammals, you know, mice and men and and various other animals are pretty much. As far as we know, none of them are resistant or tolerant of the toxic, you know, venom components. Okay. Well, what's the future of your work? What do you want to work on or what are you working on now over the next year or two? Well, right now I'm, I'm working on some of the other species. I'm working on, on some projects with vinegaroons, the, the whip-tailed scorpions and their vinegary spray. And I'm also working on giant velvet mites. So some of the other creatures that are out in the desert that are highly defended. As far as stinging insects, I'm not really doing much there because I pretty much concluded most of the uh, studies that I wanted to do originally. You know, once in a while, I'll add another thing to the sting pain scale. But on the stinging insects, mainly what I'm doing is outreach, trying to communicate the love and joy of nature and biology. And yes, the most scary insects that you can think of are actually really cool. You know, they have really fascinating biology. They're completely harmless if you do a little bit of care, take a little bit of care not to intrude on their territory and threaten them. It's just like us. If somebody threatens us, we try to fight back. And so just be respectful of the stinging insects and enjoy the beauty. I mean, things like bumblebees are essential to us as pollinators of many of our crops and an awful lot of wildflowers and beautiful things that are important in our aesthetics and lives. And so I'm trying to communicate this is the main emphasis I've turned to with stinging insects of saying, see, even the scariest of all things, if you look at it, stand back and look at them from a, a distance and objectively, you can find they're really quite beautiful. They're really not harmful. They're pretty beneficial. Uh, yellow jackets are very good for catching flies and reducing disease problems around farming areas where you might have flies that are a problem. Paper wasps are really beneficial. They catch caterpillars, which are eating up your cabbages and your vegetable crops. And that 
similar uh, animal, similar crops like that, flowers. So most of these things are beneficial. And the same with ants. There's exceptions of ants that most of us don't really like. Fire ants are, of course, the one that comes to mind. We don't like Argentine ants, which incidentally can't sting. They just bite and they, they don't really hurt much. So they're just kind of a nuisance to get 100,000 of those in your house trying to go to your sugar bin and you decide, I don't think I like Argentine ants. So ants are the main ones that are unpleasant. Some of these introduced uh, exotic species that, that come in and cause trouble. But by and large, most stinging insects are actually quite beneficial including the ants, they, they aerate the soil, they catch a lot of, uh, of insects and things that could be, uh, you know, pests and that kind of thing. Okay. Well, very good. Justin, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Well, they can just Google the sting of the wild. Amazon has it. It's readily available in paperback. It's list price is $20, but I think on Amazon it's, I'm not sure I haven't looked lately, but it's probably like $15. And you can, or you can get it from Johns Hopkins Press, who has done a marvelous job of, of producing the book. And they, they have discounts usually of 30 or 40%. And, and so you can get a, get a good price for that. The other thing you can do is just do a, uh, a search on the internet, either under my name or Sting Insects or Pain Scale. The Wikipedia has a couple of nice articles on that, one on me and one on the, uh, Insect Sting Pain Scale. And, so if you've got a computer, you can just put in a few uh, keywords and you can come up with a whole lot of really interesting information. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. And like I said, what you're doing is very cool and unique. So I appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure chatting with you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.